0: Thanks Alison for reading and Mark for leading. Let me add my welcome. My name's Steve. I'm the pastor of the church here. Um, If you're here for the first time or you're visiting, uh, then a very warm welcome to you. You find us at the very end of what has been, I think, a whole academic year in the book of 2 Samuel. So we are now at 2 Samuel chapter 24. Um, If you've uh, been with us for any of the series, you'll know that there have been ups and downs in the book and the book is not ending on a high. Instead, you'll have noticed, as Alison read, that we are now again in the depths of David's sin. And the judgment on that sin leads to the death of 70,000 Israelites. Now, there is, I think, one big and rather difficult idea in the passage that I want us to spend most of our time thinking about. But before we get to that idea, I want us just to make sure that we've got the story straight in our minds. So let's walk through the story together. It'll help you to have a Bible open in front of you if you can. Chapter 24 makes up the last part of what is essentially an epilogue uh, to the book. So from chapter 21, we've stepped outside of the chronology of the book and have come to like a sort of thematic ending. So chapters 21 and 24 are about David's sin or the sin of the people and how that's resolved. And stepping in from that, then you've got lists of mighty men. And then right at the centre, you've got David's uh, song and his final words, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Now that means that chapter 24 is at a point of history that we're not exactly sure of. The parallel account in 1 Chronicles 21 indicates that it is towards the end of David's life, but still there is very little detail here. There's lots of things as we read the story that we would love to know, which we just don't know the answer to. But still, that shouldn't put us off. As an aside, if you're uh, reading any part of the Bible, and you come up with a whole list of questions that are not answered by the text in front of you, the best conclusion to come to is that you're not asking very good questions. You should ask better ones. What's missing from the story here in 2 Samuel is not missing in order to frustrate you for essential questions that need answering, not at all. What's missing is missing in order to point you to what's actually there and what the main point is. So in verse 1, we're not told what Israel had done wrong to make God angry, We're not told how God incited David to take what in the event was a sinful census. Instead, we're just told that God was angry and did incite David. Which means I think the big problem with the census is not simply the objective immorality of it, which we'll come to, David admits that, but also that in some sense, his census of the people is against the people too. It's hostile to them. Joab doesn't like the idea, does he? But by verse 4, David has got his own way. And Joab and his men go on a nine-month road trip around Israel, counting the people. They come back in verse 9 with a very, very round number, don't they? Of 800,000 valiant men from Israel and 500,000 from Judah. In the the parallel account in 1 Chronicles, you're given a slightly different count. And you're told the corners that Joab cut in order uh, to do the count because he wasn't that impressed with David's command. There are ways, I think, to reconcile the two sets of numbers, but the big point seems to be that Joab only kept the instructions as far as he absolutely had to. 1 Chronicles 27 verse 24 puts it like this, Joab, the son of Zariah, began to count, but did not finish. Anyone done a job like that? Yet wrath came upon Israel for this, and the number was not entered in the chronicles of King David. Back in 2 Samuel, though, in 24, chapter 24, having heard the numbers in verse 10, David is convicted that what he's done is wrong. Again, we're not told exactly why. Lots of different censuses, or sensi, I'm not quite sure what the plural of censuses is, is uh, lots of them were taken before and after this account. And in Exodus 30, you're given instructions about how to take a census and how a tax must be paid when the people are counted. And there's no evidence here that David didn't collect the tax. Rather, the point seems to be that, for whatever reason, David comes to realise that what he's done is wrong. And he was right to realise he was wrong, because the conviction is affirmed by the arrival of Gad the seer, who tells him that he is in the wrong and will be punished. In verse 12, he's offered three alternatives. Three years of famine, three months of military defeat, or three days of pestilence or plague in the land. David's answer in verse 14 is brilliant. He doesn't really choose, does he? He just says, just please not military defeat. Don't throw me into the hand of vengeful enemies. Let me fall into your hands, O merciful God. Which turns out to be the smart decision, doesn't it? Because even though 70,000 men die, still God calls off the destruction of Jerusalem and stops short of what could have been. God shows mercy, a mercy that others would not have shown. The chapter then kind of draws to an end, doesn't it, with David meeting the angel of the Lord, who's striking down the people in verse 17, and he builds an altar on the site where he meets him. The site happens to be on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. So after some coming and going, the Jebusites are the people who were in Jerusalem before David got there, after some coming and going, David uh, purchases the site under the instructions of Gad again and builds an altar and sacrifices burnt offerings and peace offerings, which at the end of verse 25 are found to be acceptable to the Lord, and the plague is called off. Again, an interesting aside, in the 1 Chronicles account, you find that this threshing floor becomes the location of the temple in Jerusalem as David purchases this land and hands it over to the priests, and they build the temple there. Now, that's a quick run through the passage, but let's run back to the big idea that I mentioned at the beginning. I'm going to put it in general terms, and then I want us to work through some of the detail of how it applies. Here it is. In general terms, a big idea, God rules over sin. God rules over sin. I know it's surprising, isn't it, even saying that. It's the clear point, though, isn't it, of verse 1. Look down at verse 1. God intends, not in a general sense, but in a very specific way, that David count the people, sinfully counts the people, with the intention that 70,000 of them will die. The 1 Chronicles passage tells us that the Lord uses the devil to do this work. And it's important to note, isn't it, it distances God from the sin itself. God is using secondary means to accomplish this incitement of David. God is not being wicked here. But still when you look at 2 Samuel, the writer doesn't want to distract you with that kind of clarification. He has no intention of softening the blow. He wants you and I to hear, David incited David against them, verse 1. A few months ago, we started on this second half of 2 Samuel, didn't we, from chapter 11. I don't know whether you might remember, we compared it to a roller coaster. At the end of chapter uh, 9 and 10, I said that we've reached the the top of the roller coaster, the the pinnacle of David's life. This is where it got brilliant, and he seemed to be in charge of everything. Everything was going fantastically. But then we plunged down, didn't we, into the depths of David's sin. Adultery with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah... Amnon's attack on his sister, Amnon's murder by Absalom, Absalom's treason against David, his adultery with David's wives on the top of the roof of the palace, Absalom's murder by Joab. All of these events have been the, the roller coaster down in 2 Samuel, haven't they? And here you are at the end, and in 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, what does the writer want you to know? What does he want you to know about this roller coaster that we've been plunging on for weeks and weeks and weeks? He wants you to know this the roller coaster has a driver. That even in all the sin, someone has been steering a course, and that is none other than God himself. God is the driver in 2 Samuel, who intends, even incites the events that we've been through, and even these events here in chapter 24. Now, before we go any further, uh, and we think about the specifics of that, you should be beginning to apply that to your own life. If verse 1 is true, and I want to suggest to you that it is, it's in the Bible, it's God's word, then it means that there is nothing happening to you. Even if what is happening to you is unjust and unfair, even if it's driven by the sin of another, it's the filtering down of the sin of the king, we don't have a king, but the head teacher, the boss, the parent, the husband, there is nothing, not even in the depths of their wickedness, which is outside of the control of God himself. God is using it to accomplish His purposes in glory. Let's just pause there for a while, because I think unless you and I grasp that, really deeply grasp that, the Christian life is going to be very, very hard for us to live. The situation that you're in, whatever it is, whatever it is that's troubling you or keeping you awake at night or causing you anxiety as you think about the future, the truth is you will not cope with that, you will not be able to pass through that unless you see that even in the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is there with his rod and his staff to comfort you. And if you find that hard to believe, hard even just to get your head around that idea that God would drive the roller coaster like that, then what you need to do is read through 2 Samuel again, with 2 Samuel 24, verse 1 in mind, and just remind yourself, God's driving this. God's in control of all of this. Now, we can say more than that, and this is where the roller coaster illustration completely breaks down, because the definition of a roller coaster is what? It goes nowhere, yeah? It has absolutely no purpose other than terrifying you and making you feel nauseous, which means you wonder why people go on them at all, ever, doesn't it? Or pay good money to do it as well. Anyway, here in 2 Samuel 24, you can see that the rule, God's rule of sin, his driving of the roller coaster, is not pointless or directionless. He's not trying to terrify or make you nauseous. Instead, actually, he has a purpose that he's working out. A purpose which I think you can see in two goals that the Lord is working towards. Goals which actually aren't contradictory to one another, but actually come together. But let's talk about them separately. The first is this. God rules sin, firstly, to bring judgment. To bring judgment. It's the obvious point, isn't it, of verse 1... God is angry with Israel. We're not told why. His anger is not arbitrary, though, or random. There must have been something going on here, whether it's the failure to deal rightly with the Gibeonites or a failure to support David when Absalom rises up against him, or something else. God is rightly and justly angry with Israel. So God expresses that anger, outworks that anger, in the incitement of David to take a sinful census that led to the death of 70,000 of them. In other words, David's sin and its consequences are a judgment on Israel and their sin as its consequence. Now, here in 2 Samuel 24, you get a window into how that works out in a way that you're normally blind to. But when you think about it, we do notice this sort of thing happening all the time. Sometimes just at the level of of sowing and reaping. God has made it in the world, so that if you live in sinful rebellion against Him, you will reap the consequences of that. Not in a sort of instant karma kind of way, so that if you rob a bank you will get run over by a bus as you run away, not like that, but rather in the connection that is hardwired into the world between our sin and more sin. You know, If you're sinfully angry with people, you can expect to experience the sinful anger of others right back at you, because sin grows sin. If you're full of sinful self-interest and insecurity, always worried about what people are thinking of you, you can expect to experience shallowness in your relationships or the sinful dismissiveness of others in return. Galatians 6 talks about it in the context of withholding support, financial support, I think, from those teaching the Scriptures, and it says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, one reaps. That's enough just to make you stop and think, isn't it? That even inside the covenant of grace, even inside God's people, the church, God's judgment on sin is more often than not seen in the consequences that you reap from it. More sin. Sinful Israel have a sinful king because that's God's judgment on them. The New Testament, though, talks about it even more actively than just sowing and reaping. In Romans chapter 1, and you might want to turn there, Paul says that you can see God's judgment or his wrath at sin in our world today. In other words, what Paul is suggesting to us in Romans chapter 1 is that it's possible for us to look at the world and notice that this is a world that God is angry with, not so much in environmental disaster or thunderbolts from heaven, but rather in God in a 2 Samuel 24 verse 1 kind of way, handing people over to their sinful desires. So three times in Romans 1, he repeats the idea that God gives people up, handing them over to what they want to do. So much so that the anger or the wrath of God is seen in our world in the list of sins that he ends with in Romans 1. So if you're in Romans 1, look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. How how do you notice that God has given them over? Where are you going to see that? Well, verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Isn't that shocking? Why is it in our world that people are full of envy? Why is it in our world that people gossip? Why is it that children are disobedient to their parents? Why is it that they are heartless and ruthless? What leads people to such terrible actions? Well, it's the revelation of the wrath of God on our world as we are handed over to our sinfulness. So much so that we need to keep reminding ourselves, don't we, that the big problem in our world is not the rising cost of living, it's not the rail strikes or the walls, it's the sinful desires of our hearts which we are handed over to in God's judgment. Sin breeds sin, breeds sin, breeds sin, breeds sin, breeds sin. As God rules and drives the roller coaster to bring judgment on sin, Secondly, though, God rules sin to bring salvation. I wonder if this is perhaps easier to miss in the passage, but it is more important that we finish here. This is where all this is leading to. God's rule over David's sin in judgment on the sin of the people all steers you to these events at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. In fact, when you, when you read the story aloud, and maybe you notice this when... Um, Alison read it to us. Aruna's name gets mentioned just an awkwardly high number of times. It's a strange emphasis. But I I think the point is, notice where David ends up. Notice where he is. Notice where he is at the end of this. With this desire in his heart to pay for the sins of the people, as you notice that in verse 17. Calling them uh, sheep in verse 18 and asking that he as their shepherd might stand in their place and face their punishment. Sorry, uh, verse 17. It's then... That Gad steps in and tells him, instead of standing in their place, he should build an altar. Again, just think about God's involvement here. David, all the time, is following God's lead. He's building the altar, which he pays for himself, which leads not just to the salvation of the people from the plague, but to the purchase of the site for the temple for generations to come, which becomes the obsession of one king's. The first ten chapters of one king's are pretty much dominated by the building of the temple by David's son Solomon. A place for sinners to meet with a holy God. God's rule over sin to bring salvation. Now, of course, this power and sovereignty of God over sin to bring salvation is throughout the scriptures. But think about just how important it is. I don't know whether you've noticed this in the the account of the flood in Genesis, Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, verse 5, you're told the reason for the flood. What's the reason for the flood? Well, because the inclination of the human heart is only evil continually, right? Our hearts are bent away from God, and so God sends the flood. He sends the flood, and then at the end of the flood, in chapter 8, verse 21, what does God say about people's hearts? He says that human hearts are inclined to evil from their youth. The flood has changed nothing about human hearts. Listen, if God is going to be able to save a people for himself, If God is going to be able to send salvation in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this world, he has to be able to rule over wicked human hearts. Why? Because there are no other kind of human hearts. You see this kind of rule of God over sin in Joseph's brothers, whose wicked intentions to ruin their brother work out for the salvation of God's people from the seven years of famine. You see it in the conquest of Israel by the Assyrian army, who are hungry for blood but are being used by God to save a remnant of his people for himself. You see it in the campaign against Daniel, who was thrown in the lion's den but promoted in the kingdom leading to the return of the exiles from Babylon. But really, what is David doing here? But pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the true shepherd of God's people, the one who does stand in the place of the sheep. The true temple of God, standing in the place of Arona's threshing floor. The true sacrifice, not on an altar but on a cross, dying at the hands of wicked men who are under the rule of a sovereign God, achieving his purposes in salvation. Again, think about this with me, because this, I think, is where the writer of 2 Samuel wants us to leave, thinking that the world is governed by a God of such power and such involvement and influence in our world. That he rules the inclination of human hearts to the very extent that they achieve God's salvation through the death of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that you and I, this morning, with all the things happening in our lives, with all the ups and downs of our own roller coaster, we know not only that there is a driver, but also that there's a destination. And it's not the unbuilt temple on the threshing floor of a Jebusite, but the finished, beautiful temple coming down out of heaven, a beautiful bride, prepared for her husband, the city of God, meticulously finished in all its detail, a place of sinless joy, of deathless life, of painless eternity, that even our sin and the sin of others can do nothing but get us there. Isn't that incredible? So 2 Samuel is ending for us, essentially with an invitation. It says to you and I this morning, having looked at all the history of David, having been through all that we've been through, having ridden the roller coaster, will you now trust the driver? Will you? Will you come and see that in a world of sin, your own sin and the sin of others, your only hope is a God of such power and such love that in the person of the Son, he would stand in your place as the shepherd of your soul, paying at his own cost the cost of his physical life a sacrifice for your sins, and will you live your life submitting to him in wholehearted confidence in him like David? Now, I know that some of you in your hearts are going amen and hallelujah. We're all too emotionally repressed to do it out loud, but I know that some of you are thinking like that. But perhaps for some of you this morning, maybe this is the first time you've ever thought about this. Maybe you've got more questions. I'd love to speak to you about those. But maybe this morning, you're, you're ready at the end of 2 Samuel just to go, I'm going to take the plunge I'm going to trust in the driver in a way that I've never done before. Well, let me encourage you this morning to trust in Christ right now like that. There is one who rules and reigns over sin for both judgment and salvation, who has driven all of your lives to this point to bring you to the point of trusting in Christ alone for salvation, a salvation which can be found nowhere else because there's no other God like this. There's no other salvation like this. Well, let me pause for a moment. We'll have a moment of quiet and then I'll close in prayer. Let me pray. I'm going to pray a prayer just of simple trust in God and confidence in the Lord Jesus. Maybe you want to echo it in your own heart. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have shown us this morning and been showing us for weeks and months in the book of 2 Samuel, that you rule and reign in every corner of our world and every corner of our lives. Thank you that your rule over even the sinful inclinations of human hearts brings about salvation in the person of the Lord Jesus. And this morning we turn to Jesus. We say that we're sorry for our sin and we say that we trust in you alone. Please, Lord, we pray, help us to live our lives with confidence in you alone and bring us home to glory one day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.